Listen, like Paul said, we are in the middle of an Advent series called The Gift Exchange. We just picked words out of, uh, out of the announcement of the angels about the coming of the Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. And want to take a look at them because I think like many words in our uh, English dictionary, they've been kind of sort of taken hostage. And so we, the first week we got together, we talked about peace. Of all things that people are looking for in our world, in our culture, they would say, give me some kind of settled heart. Give me peace. And we looked at the word peace through the gospel, that there is an issue that exists between sinful man and a holy God. It's enmity. And the enmity or the war exists because we're in rebellion against God. But Jesus comes to bridge that chasm, right? To be uh, the peace with God for us, that Jesus bore all of the wrath a holy God can have against every sin that we've ever committed to make peace possible. And we understand that not only does he do that being, and Jesus Christ is Savior who's made sense out of senseless things, and that's where the peace of God comes from. And we understand, too, that there is this peace that needs to happen between people. We are sinful people who have a better skill at hurting each other than anything else I can think of. And so we need to understand how we treat others through the lens of God's forgiveness to us. And so we looked at that piece. Last week, we looked at joy. I think it's ironic that we're having these discussions now, but joy, that God exchanges our sadness for his joy. In fact, Paul says in Philippians that, that it's a command to rejoice in the Lord always, that that's what we do as Christians. And it's not just a mindset. It's not how, just feel different. It's actually understanding that God is in control of the circumstances and that the source of true joy is in a relationship with Jesus. Now, the punchline to every word we give you in this series is Jesus. It's the punchline to every sermon. Nothing makes sense without a Savior who deals with our needs and our longings and our inabilities. And so today is no different. We are going to look at the glory of God, God's glory, and how God's glory intersects with sinful man in the coming of Jesus Christ. There are people who have said there are three categories of what you know in your life. There is the things that you know you know, simple. There are things that, if you're willing to admit it, things you know you don't know, like Facebook for me or anything that has to do with a computer. Um, and then there's this third category, the things you don't know you don't know, okay? If you're willing to admit it, the, the glory of God probably fits in category three. I don't know what I don't know about God's glory. That, that just seems to be too big to fathom, too much to contain in my, in my little head. Um, it's an abstract thought to us. So here we are at Christmas time, running around like our heads are cut off and doing good things, you know, family, tradition, all that kinds of stuff. We've got all the hectic part of it, but if we're honest, Christmas has taken on a life of its own. Someone said this about Christmas, we have successfully manufactured an event that clearly demonstrates the postmodern phenomena of creating one's own meaning. In, in other words... There, that in our culture, we have created the biggest holiday the world over that focuses on everything but the glory of God. So we can't even use this wonderful season that the angels announced about God's glory and his coming and say, okay, now we got our perspective back. We've even twisted and distorted the very season that reveals the glory of God, and so we need, we need help to start rethinking about this. And I want you to start in the announcement. So Luke, Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bibles... We'll have the scriptures up on the screen for you if you don't, but Luke chapter 2, we're going to read the announcement again and also the kind of the angel's response to this coming of Jesus. Luke 
Here's what it says. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. It means heavy. It means weight. The idea of glory, whenever it's mentioned in Scripture, is, is basically the, the majesty and the importance of God, the heaviness of God. Let's put it in another word that one might, might kind of shake us a little bit, the crisis of God. You can't just be warm and fuzzy with the idea of a creator God who cares about sin and righteousness and go, oh, well, it's kind of cool that he's that kind of God. If you believe in that God, you've created for yourself a huge crisis. It's you and your brokenness and your sin and twistedness. If we don't deal with God's glory somehow, we've got problems, okay? Most of us, when we think of God, and I understand this, would prefer to think of him, as we see in the scriptures, as a friend of sinners. Jesus says that in, in John 15, doesn't he? That he's a friend. We'd prefer that version. But he's not your buddy. There's a big difference between how Jesus describes himself as a friend and this idea of, oh, I guess I can kind of just abuse the relationship. Jesus makes himself available to us as friends, but there's always a weight and a power and an awe to God. It never goes away. That's the glory that the scriptures are talking about here. And it makes it clear, the scriptures do, that understanding God's glory always transforms people who see it and people who embrace it. So for our time together today, I want to look at the glory of God. There's, there's too much, I mean, to fathom, to, to, to understand it all, to plumb its depth, but there's a couple of thoughts that we want to address about God's glory, the way we intersect with it, and I'm going to make it real simple. We're going to look at the glory of God made known in Jesus, the glory of God come close in Jesus, the glory of God that got in our mess with Jesus, the glory of God that's devastating without Jesus, and the glory of God that gives definition to life and living. Jesus. Okay, so that's real simple thoughts that we're going to have today about God's glory. Let's deal with the first one, that the glory of God is made known in Jesus. How can you get your mind around God? How do you get your mind around the Trinity? One God, three persons. How do you define that? All-knowing, sovereign, all-powerful God who always was and always will be. Other than just saying those words, how do you really fathom those thoughts? The finite can't understand the infinite. You can't get your head around it except for one possible way, Jesus. Because through Jesus, God was made known. This unknowable God at some form and fashion was made known. I want you to see this in John chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to the right from where we were. And you'll see in verse 18 that one of the reasons of Jesus' coming was to make this unknowable God known to us. Verse 18 says it this way, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, has made him known. 
The only shot we ever had knowing who God is and what he's like is because Jesus, God the Son, came in flesh to reveal himself to us. If you wanted to see the glory of God, you couldn't survive it apart from Christ. That, that phrase is interesting to me, that last little phrase in verse 18, he has made him known. It's, it's the Greek word exegeomai, and it just simply means that, that to make something known by giving a detailed explanation of it. It's the same idea we get um, what we're doing right now, to exegete a passage, to explain the scripture. So when someone's exegeting this, the word, they're explaining to you the word. Jesus is the explanation of the Father. He's exegeting God when he comes. You understand? That's what he came for, to make him, him known. He reveals the glory of God to us. It's clear. So if you want to, a very simple explanation, how do you define the glory of God? All you got to do is understand Jesus, and you're really close, okay? Because that's what he came for. In fact, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus is the very nature God, okay? So one mind-blowing concept is this unknowable, at some level, infinite holy God would make the decision to be known by his creation. Now, that should start a whole series of thoughts, and you're like, oh, I don't know how this could be, and why would he be interested in that? We'll get to some of that. So here's the second aspect I want you to see. Not only has he been made known through Jesus, but the glory of God came close to Jesus. And I want you to see the kind of escalating weight of this truth. In other words, one of the most amazing realities is that this holy, awesome, transcendent, all-powerful, all-creating, sustaining God would move towards his creation. I mean, God could have made himself known and still kept his distance, couldn't he? He could have done something to say, here's what I'm like. Here's a list of 10 things you need to know that I am. And still kept this great big distance between sinful creation at war with God and himself. But he does even more. He comes close to those at war with him. Watch this. John chapter 1. We're going to read verse 1 and verse 14. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's speaking of Jesus there. Now watch what happens in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. It is mind-blowing to think that God became man. And I know we have to spend some time with this because some of us have a tendency to think, well, there's a different version of the kind of man he was. He was sort of like us, but not like us. And so, therefore, there's still this separation. And, and I want you to understand something, that he was a real man with all the tendencies other than sin of real man. Kent Hughes says it this way. The great historic doctrine of the church is that the Son of God became a real man, not just someone who only appeared to be a man. When he was born, God the Son. Romans 12, verse 12 and 13. All knowing this under the direction of God the Father, he did not give up those attributes, but he submitted them and their existence in his life to the Father's discretion. Though he was sinless, he had a, hum a real human body, mind, and emotions, complete with their inherent human weaknesses. As a real baby in the cradle, he watched his tiny clenched fist in uncomprehending fa fascination, just like any other baby. He did not... Um, Fate, babyhood. He did not say to himself, you all think I'm a pre-incarnate baby discovering I have a hand. Actually, I'm God admiring my brilliant invention. I'm your creator, and I understand every word you're saying. Not at all. He was not pretending. This was not some postnatal spoof. He was a real baby. 
Is that impossible to get your head around? Maybe a little bit. The creator would willingly subject himself to creation. Like he spoke everybody into existence. He sustains us by the power of his word, and then he comes to submit himself to that structure. It's amazing. He was bound by the same physical laws you and I are. He had the ups and downs of life like we do. He learned the language, and he grew in knowledge like every one of us do. He had to learn what it was like to be a carpenter. I bet he skinned his knuckles a time or two, right? He went through growing pains just like we do. He did all that as a real human, although sinless and perfect, he really, he really did. So just think of the sequence now. God revealed himself in Jesus, the glory of God made known. The glory of God gets close to sinners by taking on flesh, just as we've read here in John, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But there's a third aspect, and it gets better and better and better as we reveal what God has done through Christ, and that is this, that the glory of God got into our mess in Jesus. He could have revealed himself. He could have and did become flesh, but he decided to get close to the pain, which is an amazing truth. Everything we've talked about so far um, is hard to comprehend, but this one makes me feel. Um, It kills me to know that God didn't just um, make himself known, but he uh, got elbow deep in our hurts. Let me show you a passage that, that you're familiar with. John 11, if you turn to the right. This is a story of Lazarus and his uh, death and resurrection. Through the vantage point of God the Son, knowing what he was going to do and yet feeling how we feel. Um, let me give you a little background to this story. Lazarus was the brother of Martha and Mary. Uh, they're described as the ones, the family that Jesus loved and Lazarus dies, okay? He's been told that he's... He's sick, and then he dies, and then Jesus makes a statement in verse 14 of chapter 11 when he's trying to deal with his disciples about what, what's going on here. Now, he uses the idea of sleep at one point in this passage to talk about what Lazarus is going through, but he was talking about death sleep, and they thought, well, if he's just sick, give it time, and he'll get better, but Jesus has to clarify in verse 14. He says, then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died. Now, watch verse 15. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Hearing about the story of this one whom Jesus loved, Lazarus, and his death, Jesus doesn't appear to be broken about it. He has an agenda. God the Son knows what he's doing with his disciples. There's going to be a a message to see and to hear in the life of this resurrection. You're going to see wonderful things that are going to grow and fan your faith. Just hang in there. So God, through the Son, is not confused on what he's doing here. And that's what he says in verse 14 and 15. But now pick up in verse, uh, verse 32. This is after Jesus has had a conversation with Martha and now Mary about um, Jesus waiting a few days before he showed up. And this is what Mary says in verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. Now, here's what I know, okay? It blows my mind to think the creator of God in control of this story is grieving with the people who don't see what he's doing. But he does. Our God grieves with us. 
He doesn't grieve like us, but he grieves with us. And there's a big difference. You know how I grieve? I grieve with these thoughts. I don't understand. Right? I don't know. I don't know. How could this be good? How could this story ever produce anything in my life or anybody else's life? This has bad written all over it, God. I don't get it. Now, that's how we suffer. Because we have puny little perspectives, but God doesn't suffer from confusion of what he's doing, and he knows what he's doing is good, and it's good for us, his church. He knows all that stuff, so why would God shed a tear over something good he was in control of? Because he's so close to the human experience, he feels what we feel. If there's anything in your life that should warm you to the wonderful nature of God come to rescue sinners, it's that. There's a, I have a band room in the front of my house, okay? No surprise there. We have a very small house, 1,800 square feet, and the very front room you come into is a band room. Every instrument under the sun is in that room, and there's about 20, I counted, about 20 guitars hanging on the wall, okay? And here's what I know, and I'm going to give you a little music lesson. The great rock and roll guitar chord is E, because the guitar is tuned in E. Now, this is total trivia you'll never need again, but it'll help with this story. If you hit an E, right, because there's two E strings in a guitar, that baby just lights up. If you take a guitar into that band room and you hit an E chord, they all start to play E. It's called, it's called a sympathetic resonance. You hit a chord and they all just start to vibrate based on the chord you've played. One writer said this about sympathetic resonance. He said, consider the implication of Christ's astounding capacity for sympathy and understanding. His instrument, so to speak, was the same as ours. It is a fact that if you have two in-tune pianos in the same room and a note is struck on one and the same note will gently respond on the other, though not touched by the another person's hand. Christ's instrument, his humanity, was like ours in every way, except he had no sin. And when a chord is struck in the weakness of our human instrument, it resonates in his. There is no note of human experience that does not play in Christ's as well. Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 11, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Amen? He has an unequaled capacity for sympathy. It goes far beyond intellectual understanding. Jesus does not just imagine how his children feel. He really feels it. Now, he revealed himself, the glory of God on display in Jesus, the glory of God come close because Jesus took on flesh to become like one of us, and he gets in our mess. He experiences your pain and your hurt from your vantage point, even though he's sovereign over the story and knows that he's producing good in his children. He knows all that, but he knows how we feel, and so he feels what we feel, Amen. There's some wonderful truth behind the glory of God come to us in the person of Jesus. I find it very ironic that I was writing this before I knew that A.J. was going to die on Monday. I'm watching people who know him, like my sons, and go, wow, they're grieving. But to understand that God feels that stuff. He's not confused. He's not wondering how this is going to turn out or if it's going to produce anything good. He feels it. The glory of God gets down on its knees gets in our mess. God's people should say amen to that. He understands so much more than anyone else. He understands our fears. He understands our hurts and our loss. 
our God, suffered. He got hungry. He was beaten. He was made fun of. He was ridiculed. He went homeless. What can't God, the creator, understand about what we're going through? He got in a mess. I want to tell you something else about the glory of God. Because if you listen to all of that, unless you're clueless, you should hear that and go, wow, that's winsome. Just tell me where to sign up. I want that God, right? He came close. He revealed and, and he understands and he gets in our mess. Who wouldn't want that God? I want you to understand something here, though, that the glory of God is devastation without Jesus. You can't just understand that he's glorious. You can't just understand that he's God in the flesh, come to this earth. You have to trust him for a covering. Now, I want to show you what I'm talking about in Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33 is the description of Moses and the people and Moses' conversation with God about the people. And there's something that Moses asks and that God responds to that tells us a lot about the glory of God. Let me give you a little background to this story. This is just following, I would say, one of Israel's biggest boneheaded moves. Moses, Moses goes up on the mountain after being let out of, the, out of imprisonment in Egypt. He's on the mountain receiving from God the instructions to the people, and the people get restless, and they start to formulate a false god. They build a golden calf. Remember that story? This is post that experience, and Moses now is talking to God again, and God says something to Moses that, that really bothers Moses. God says, I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to keep my promise, but I'm not going with you this time. Because my people are boneheaded, and they're stuck on stupid, and all they do is rebel against me. I'll send an angel, and you'll get to the promised land, but this time I'm sitting this one out. And this is Moses' response to that in verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, Moses says, listen, if you're not going, don't, let's not leave. I don't even want to go. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So Moses is reminding God of the covenant. And then he says in verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know, know you by name. And then Moses asked this amazing request. Moses said, Please, Show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on a rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. It's possible to hear all these aspects of God's glory revealed and coming close and understanding our pain and saying, well, I would take that. Who wouldn't want that? But I want you to know that the weight of the glory of God is terrifying without a rock to hide in. The scriptures define Jesus many, many ways, many word pictures for Jesus, but he is the foundation. He is the, he is the rock to be covered in because if you are exposed to the glory of God one second on your own without a representation, it's devastating. Let, let me put this in uh, 
modern vernacular. I don't know who's here, but my assumption is, as there is every week, that some of you don't know Jesus. That's your estimation of your own life, not mine of yours. You're here and you've been in church, whatever. You're here because someone brings you. You've got a parent who cares about you and invited you here. You know the word Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. By your own admission, you would say you have not confessed him as Lord and Savior. You've seen no fruit in your life. And you're thinking, maybe if I do these things or don't do these things, if I sort out a, per, a particular set of behaviors, that maybe my good pile will win over my bad pile and I got a shot. I want you to know something. You have no shot because the standard is perfection. You can't work yourself out of your problem. You can't be good enough on your own. You need a righteousness that the Bible describes as a perfect righteousness. And here's what we understand. God is holy. God is holy and he hates sin. God is just and he judges sinners. The Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means every person in here and every person you've ever met and will meet is in that position. And God's standard is absolutely perfection and the Bible says we all fall short. And we need what the angels were singing about in Luke chapter 2, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what we need. More than anything else, we need a covering we need to be hidden in Christ. My sin needs to be punished perfectly and completely. My righteousness comes from Jesus, that we're covered with his work and his perfection, not my own. That's what the scripture says. So you can look at the story and go, wow, look at this God who makes himself known. Look at the God who takes on flesh and becomes like one of us. Look at this God who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who experienced pain like ours to get close to us. And then you would say, okay, well, now what do I do? Well, if that's as far as you know, then the glory of God will devastate you one day because everyone will stand before him and his perfection and his holiness will sift you completely. The Bible talks a place, and I know this is not popular, the Bible talks about an outcome called hell, a punishment place that never ends. The glory of God might sound fun on the front end, but as you get closer, you realize that the glory of God will be the judge of us. But I want you to see this ironic twist, okay? If you're on your own apart from Christ, the glory of God should scare you to death. But for those of us who are in Christ, there is these words we've been talking about the last couple of weeks called peace and joy. Next week is hope. You get that with the glory of God because you experience it through Christ. Amen? Simple faith. Glory becomes my peace and my comfort. There's one more truth about the glory of God I want to mention to you today. And that is the glory of God now defines life and living. Apart from Christ, here's what I know. Life is just an endless cycle of pointless wanderings. It just is. Pursuing happiness and never quite getting it, you know, having brief little glimpses, kind of like doing drugs. You get a high for a moment, then you wake up, that kind of thing. But knowing Christ means that this self, stuck on self-worship becomes true worship. It means that my pointless existence now becomes a divine activity, which is incredible. It means that my mundane life, that you could just say, well, I don't, it doesn't have a really a point to it. There's nothing to, to talk about, nothing to brag about. It's, it's, it's pointless. It raises the mundane to an offering to the glory of God. That's what the scriptures say. In fact, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Whether you eat or drink, what? Do it all to the glory of God. Now, how, what could be more mundane than eating and drinking? 
But somehow, Paul says, you can do everything to the glory of God, even those things that you would not um, consider that important. So let me answer this question. Maybe you're thinking it. How do we bring glory to an all-sufficient, perfect, all-wise, sovereign, creating, all-powerful God? How, how can you bring glory to a God who has everything? Really? It's a good question to ask. The answer is real simple. Enjoy Him, love Him, live for Him. That's how you bring glory to God. Let me use a couple of illustrations. These are not mine. I, I stole them, but I think they're good. How do you bring glory to God in a, um, how do you bring glory to God? So these are some examples. For instance, how do you bring glory to a beautiful painting? Ever think about it? Do you run out and buy some brushes and some new paint to kind of make some adjustments to the painting to, to, to help it out? No, you simply appreciate it. You talk about it to your friends, right? How do, how do you bring glory uh, to a wonderful meal? You strap on an apron, head off to the kitchen, grab some spices and tweak the, the meal? No. Here's what you do. You eat it, a lot of it, right? You smile, you burp, you do whatever you have to do to enjoy it. You take pleasure in it. In fact, uh, whenever you take pleasure in something, you're saying that you treasure it. How, how would you bring glory to a, a bridge? Every time I drive to Coronado and I go over that big bridge, you know, I just like, wow, this is amazing. You know, it's amazing. How do you bring glory to something like that? You put your family in a car and you drive over it. You trust it to carry you. You trust it to be strong enough not to collapse under your weight, right? How, how do you bring glory to, to someone who's been generous to you? Do you try to take out loans or borrow from other people to pay it back? No, you simply say, thank you. A sin we don't often re realize. Glory to, to someone who has great wisdom. You wait around for some moment where they have a question and you want to answer so that you're even. No, you do what they say because they're smarter than you. You get the point? You get the analogy? How do you bring glory to God? Enjoy Him. Trust Him. Obey Him. It's not, it's not complicated. Everything you do is raised to a brand new level of importance when you understand this. And here's the, here's the truth about it. Every man, woman, and child, young or old, whatever race, rich or poor, educated or simple, sick or healthy, all of us have the same opportunity to do what we do, however small it is, to the glory of God. We enjoy Him and what He gives. We trust Him and what He promises, right? And we, we obey Him and everything that He says. The angels in, in Luke 2 declared glory to God in the highest, and little did we know the glory of God was on display. In the coming of this baby, God in human flesh, getting close to our mess, making the things of our life that would seem so minuscule at one level, raised to now holy proportions. Like I can do my job for the glory of God, and I can be a dad to the glory of God, and I can serve to the glory of God, and I can come and go to the glory of God, and I can reconcile with people to the glory of God. Everything matters, right? Come on, collective shake. Yeah, everything matters because the glory of God was made known. The glory of God came close. It got in our mess. It'd be devastating without Jesus, right? And it raises everything to a, 
to an offering level. Let's pray together. There's no way we could even talk about this right now, Father, without your help. Your glory really is um, comprehensible without Jesus. And even then, we need Holy Spirit intervention. God, I pray for us, your people, if there are Christians in this room, that they might consider the source of their joy again in a fresh way this morning by looking at the ways in which you've shown yourself to us, the way in which you came to this earth humbly as a child, the way in which you feel what we feel and hurt what we hurt, even though knowing that you're weaving a great story of your, your glory and our goodness. God, I pray right now that uh, we would sense it in a fresh way so that maybe we would see that phrase from the angels, maybe from a new perspective this, this Christmas season. Your glory isn't displayed to us any other way than the coming of our Savior. We pray. Amen.